from the great Patti Smith. The Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook shares the offerings of an inspired culinary culture, inviting us to try delicious new dishes with a loving emphasis on family health and unity, a wonderful blend of consumer protection and consumer pleasure. Ralph Nader is best known for his social critiques and his efforts to increase government and corporate accountability. But what some might not know about him is his lifelong commitment to healthy eating. Born in Connecticut to Lebanese parents, Ralph's appreciation of food began at an early age. We will be talking about this and many other things as we welcome today on The Literary Life my guest, Ralph Nader. Well, we're here to talk about your cookbook. I can't believe it. And I had so much fun reading it. Oh, good. And learning good. about your family and learning about, and you know, I have to say, it's the way I love eating. You know, we... <laughs> that helps. You know, labneh cheese. I love labneh cheese. And I mm -hmm. love, you know, all of these different things. Although I'm a bit of a vegetarian, so the lamb doesn't always work, but everything else I really, really loved. What was the impetus for you writing this cookbook now? Well, Mitch, the word is now. I should have written it a long time ago because back in the 60s and 70s when I was lobbying Congress for um, meat inspection, safety and poultry, and safety and food safety and food labeling, people would say, well, what do you eat? You're always criticizing junk food and sugary drinks. What do you eat? And I mumble something like, well, you know, I, I, uh, I eat hummus made from chickpeas and, you know, uh, 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 all kinds of uh, uh, cracked wheat I call butterfly. They wouldn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> so so that's when I should have written this uh, family cookbook, which is really my mother's recipes and what we grew up on. And so I decided better late than never. And uh, also the introduction to the book gives some good advice by my mother uh, as to how to use food as an educational opportunity at the dinner table, how it's grown, how it's distributed, uh, how it's processed, uh, the difference between uh, cooking from scratch and cooking from processed uh, foods and above all, do not whine at the table about the food. I think the the whole book is worth the advice uh, or the way the technique she used to get us uh, just from the beginning not to whine about the food. They ate what we ate and we ate what our parents ate. Well, what what I really loved about it is that it's called the Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook because really what you get from this is such a beautiful sense of family and a beautiful sense of your family when you were young. And I, and I imagine a lot of the way your mother and your father handled family meals led a lot to who you are in so many ways. Um, oh, no, no doubt. You know, I, we once the children just put out a book years ago called it happens in the kitchen. I mean, it was the conversation and, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we joked and laughed, but we talked about things that went on locally, nationally, internationally, and uh, uh, 
you know, we were allowed to express ourselves on serious things. You know, we when we were really small, we'd come home from school at lunch, and um, and my mother would uh, uh, give us a folk tale. You know, like the whole series of Joan d'Arc, uh, little bits and pieces, and and then in the evening she'd ask us what we learned in school, uh, and this was around the dinner table when she had our undivided attention <laughs> with, the, right. with the food. Tell me a little bit about your mom. What is her background? Where, where, where was she from? Well, she was born in uh, Zahli, uh, a town in Lebanon. And uh, my father was born in uh, a mountain town in Lebanon. And this was under the Ottoman Empire. And, you know, there's a lot of poverty. So my father immigrated in 1912 and then he went back and met my mother and she came over around 1924 and uh, they settled in an industrial town a little town in northwest connecticut crossed by two rivers the still river and the mad river and the mad river was well known because it uh, flooded two three times in 30 30 years and destroyed the main street the long main street my dad had a restaurant, and it had a delicatessen and a, a dining area and a counter and a bar. And uh, people would say, you know what, Nader's for a nickel, you got a cup of coffee and 10 minutes of political discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, called the, it was called the Highland Arms Restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah. He got that name because he, uh, he offered a contest he, he, for the local community. He said, well, you know... I don't know what to name it. Why don't you make suggestions? It was an American food restaurant. You know, in those days, Mitch, outside of a few Chinese restaurants and Italian restaurants, there weren't the ethnic restaurants that are gloriously situated all over our country. And uh, there just was no market to try to sell, you know, lentils with onions and uh, hummus and, uh, you know, stuffed uh, grape leaves or stuffed eggplant. Uh, people just didn't have the taste. Uh, you, could, you couldn't you could possibly give away a, a dish of yogurt. Uh, and then gradually, uh, people diversified their cuisine. And now, I mean, look, hummus is, you know, in all, most supermarkets is sold. And there are thousands of uh, Arabic cuisine, Middle East restaurants all over the country. Uh, no, we were, we were stuck with, uh, you know, the rather narrow... American cuisine of uh, hamburgers, uh, ham and eggs, uh, various soups. And uh, uh, I learned how to mix it up with uh, a lot of people went through town uh, with the county courthouses there. The jurors would take a break for lunch. We had a huge textile plant right across the town river, right across the river, about a football field away from the restaurant. And the workers would come in. Uh, at lunch or afterwards, and uh, salespeople would stop by, and there was a summer camp. It was the second largest natural lake called the Highland Lake uh, in town, and they'd have summer camp, and people from Boston, New York, come with their kids. I got a real education. I, I mean, I cannot overestimate how important that was to me, to my siblings. Just hanging out in the restaurant, you met so many different people. So many different people, spontaneous conversation, 
uh, and I learned a lot uh, of what they were skilled at. Uh, you know, the, just standing there watching them eat, and I was behind the counter. Was, you know, what do you do? Well, after a while, you knew uh, Henry the painter and Bill the bricklayer, and they just talked. I mean, you know, they're experts in those areas. And I learned a lot that way. Uh, learned a lot about the history of the town uh, and history of that whole area, natural history. I never knew the town had a town farm. They had a town farm in, in the old days. Um, the uh, Most of the uh, institutions were uh, philanthropists who uh, uh, who gave money. They, they, uh, they built the uh, high school. They built the first uh, uh, hospital in the county. Philanthropists built the first memorial library, uh, parks, Civil War monument. Um, my dad took me on a tour once when I was about eight or nine, and he said, look at, look at this, look at that. That was started by Mr. Gilbert, and this was started by Miss Beardsley. And he said, you know, they all were started between 1890 and 1906. Wow. That was the period. So I'd imagine if the, the people who were as wealthy as they did the same thing from that time to now. Look, right. look what kind of town we, so that really taught me the, uh, the, the whole function of giving institutionally, not just, uh, you know, soup kitchens, which is important. People are hungry, but it, institutions built by charitable contributions. Well, and you also, through your dad, who owned a small business, I think that gave you this lifetime appreciation for what small business actually means in this country. Yeah, very much so. And he went to the next step, too. He didn't want us to patronize the AMP he wanted to which didn't give any families credit during the depression he wanted us to patronize the local grocery store which did uh, lend um, you know they give poor people food and say pay us uh, later uh, and uh, a long time ago we learned the importance of uh, family-owned businesses because they had a greater loyalty they weren't going to closed down and leave and whatever charity they gave, they, they gave right there where the AMP would say, well, we give it headquarters, you know, in Oakland. Or so. so tell me, <laughs> or what, something. Where, where did your father pick up this, this kind of sensibility as an immigrant? Where did he pick up a, you know, this, this whole idea of social justice? Where did that come from, from him? I think he read a lot. He, he read a lot. And after all, he, he did, uh, leave the Ottoman Empire. It was not the most autocratic of empires, but you know, you, you didn't exactly have free speech, and he always liked to voice his opinions, and even if it cost him business. And some people would say, "Mr. Nader, you know, you're you're talking very controversial things. Uh, you're going to lose business." He said, "Well, let me tell you something. When I sailed past the Statue of Liberty, 1912, I took it seriously. Do you?" <laughs> I remember him saying that. <laughs> the people at the counter, they didn't quite know what to, <laughs> what oh to say. And the other thing is he learned from a lot of people because he always engaged in serious conversation. It could be short, five, ten minutes, but he wasn't into small talk. I love the way in the cookbook, you know, your mom would ask you certain questions, but your dad would then ask you, probably more pointed political questions as well at the dining room table, right? 
you, you yeah, know. a good example is we were in the backyard, all the families, a sunny day, nice breeze, and my mother started saying, how much are a dozen eggs? Uh, how much is a bushel of uh, apples? And we knew the answers because we were a restaurant family, uh, and we didn't know what she was getting at. And then after a few more of those questions, she said, do you hear those birds singing? He said, yeah, mom. Well, how much does that cost? I said, mm. isn't this a nice breeze and a hot day? What does that cost? You see that pear tree that we have right there? What's the price on that? Yeah, whereas my father, uh, uh, pertinent to the point you made, I came home one day around eight years old, I guess, and I said, Dad, I just learned who discovered America. And he said, who? I said, Christopher Columbus. He said, sit down, son. <laughs> he, said, he said, Christopher Columbus invaded America. He was looking for gold. And he slaughtered a lot of natives in the Caribbean. Oh, there were a lot of people there when he, when he came ashore. Uh, so I never forgot that. So, you know, they had this pattern. The one that really uh, uh, caught Phil Donahue's attention once when I was on his show was I came home one day in elementary school and my dad said, well, what did you learn today, Ralph? Did you learn how to l believe or did you learn how to learn? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you know what? I don't, I don't quite know what that, what does that mean? And then he explained it. And, uh, I realized that I was being taught to believe more than I was being taught to learn or to think. And, uh, and ever, ever since that exchange, I was going into uh, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, high school, college, law school. I would always ask myself, is this teacher teaching me how to believe or teaching me how to think? I mean, there's nothing wrong with believing, but it's good to have it, especially after the Trumpian age, it's good to have it being preceded by a little thinking and factual knowledge. But tell the I story that you have in the introduction where you said, I don't like this. And then your mom said, which I are you talking about? Right? Yeah, that was really pretty priceless. I was eight years old and I was first at the table at lunch ahead of my older siblings. And she had a nice fresh dish of celery, radishes, and carrots, raw. And she put put it down. And I looked at him and uh, unusually rebelled because we were taught not to question the food. Uh, and I said, I don't like this. I don't want this. Take it away. And she said, what? And so I repeated the I. I hate it. I don't like it. I don't like its taste and whatever. So she said, well, you know, I've been listening to you, Ralph. Who is I? And I'm saying to her, I? Uh, it's Ralph. I. Me. And she persisted. And she said, no, I don't think that's who you mean when you say I. Is I your uh, your heart, your your liver, your lungs, your fingers? Who Who is I? Well, at that time, I was completely flummoxed. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And she, she hit the conclusion. She said, I think I know who I is. And I said, who, Mom? She said, I think I is your tongue. Why are you turning your tongue against your brain? Now, eat it up. You'll be able to run faster. <laughs> that is 
That is great. The book obviously is a great gift, especially if uh, if you're part of the Arab American ethnic group. It's a superb gift because it resonates so much. But it's it, the Mediterranean diet, as Arabic cuisine is now called, uh, Mitch, is considered widely as the most nutritious uh, diet. It's relatively low in fat, sugar, salt. Yeah. It's not heavy on meat. It's it had lamb. It's not heavy on meat. And some of these recipes, like stuffed eggplant, you can take it with lamb or you can take it vegetarian. But it's an enormously important uh, cuisine now because more and more people are cooking at home. You know, with the COVID-19, they're starting gardens. We always had a family garden. Uh, and, um, you know, they're, they're starting to buy uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and less canned and processed foods. And that's, that's what the book is so great, that it's ingredients uh, in the, for the recipes, which are very simple recipes, by the way. Uh, are available in almost all the food stores and they're inexpensive and easily put together. In fact, my mother didn't like strict recipes. She used to call them use your own judgment recipes. <laughs> so I noticed the food editor for the New York times has just put a, put out a book, uh, uh, judgmental recipes. So I think my mother was a little earlier. There's so fun. I, I couldn't get all the stories in, but one day, Apparently, the Wall Street Journal got tired of denouncing me. So they, they had an editorial denouncing my mother because <laughs> she said, that, yeah, because the, the, the Wall Street Journal corporate editorialist uh, learned that she would not give us uh, what are bits of candy uh, to chew on on the way uh, to school. You know, you walk to school, no buses in those days. And she'd give us chickpeas, raw chickpeas. And uh, the... Uh, the, the editorial writer thought that was part of the tyrannical inheritance <laughs> that I took from my mother that I put it into regulation of corporations. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty creative on, on behalf of the wall street journal. Well, the other thing, I mean, I just have uh, people, this is a podcast, so you can't see the book, but it's a beautifully published book by Akashic books. And what I love about it is that, when you go through it, you have each chapter, whether it's at, you, you basically take people through a meal. And with, with each chapter, you have a little, a little quote. This probably a quote from your parents or from you, like for instance, with appetizer and dips, you say, these recipes invite you to quote, use your own judgment, as my mother Rose <laughs> would suggest. Arab food is, right. is especially suited for experimentation. Not having to follow rigid proportions and ingredients allows you to stimulate your own sense of ingenuity and can lead to rave reviews from your family and guests. So it's really about hospitality. I love the soups thing too. These soups rose to deeper levels of satisfaction during freezing New England snowstorms. As my mother once said, these are simple foods that will warm you from the tips of your toes to the roots of your hairs and will fill the <laughs> empty places in between. This is, uh, you know, this is gold, uh, Ralph, this book. I, I can't thank you enough for it. It's so beautifully done. What is it that you eat when you want, when you want to really sort of, what is your comfort food? What is your like go-to meal when you want to sort of, 
you know, sort of, you know, feel somewhat sane in this insane world we find ourselves in. Well, well, my favorite dish in this book, uh, so much so that she gave it to me on my fifth birthday, my mother, is stuffed eggplant. And as I mentioned, uh-huh. it comes in either with lamb, tomatoes, pine nuts, could be some parsley, onions, uh, or it could be totally vegetarian. It's out of this world. And after you finish, you, you, you don't feel too full and you don't feel like you want another round. It's extremely good. In fact, the use of olive oil, uh, garlic, onions, mint throughout this book really gives a tremendous flavor to the recipes. I also like uh, stuffed egg, uh, stuffed uh, uh, grape leaves and stuffed cabbage. Uh, people know usually what stuffed grape leaves are all about, but stuffed cabbage uh, is also very innovative. You can put a lot of things in, in, in brown rice in them and all kinds of ways to make them uh, delicious. And I always thought cabbage is a very underrated food. It's extremely uh, nutritious. And then, of course, you know, th- there are appetizers, there are desserts. You can get your uh, taste buds stimulated. To s- some of the great uh, Lebanese desserts are out of this world, but those are a little difficult to make. They do take some uh, skill with the fingers uh, to make mamoul and macaron chouchib, but those are usually reserved for holidays. But uh, rice pudding, oh, I know. Just thinking of the rice pudding, the rose water <laughs> makes your mouth water. <laughs> I know. And the good news is, you talk about, uh, I guess there's a chef that, um, helped you with a couple of the recipes and he's got an amazing Lebanese restaurant, right? In Connecticut. Yes. And that's, that's another cultural biodiversity of immigration. He came in, came from Lebanon about 20, 25 years ago. He started a catering service, uh, up in Northwest Connecticut. And then he opened a restaurant. He called it new James. His name is George new James. And he actually, uh, cooked the recipes with a photographer uh, taking pictures, all color pictures throughout uh, the book. And he contributed uh, some of his own recipes. For example, he's very proud of a garlic soup. Now people would say, oh, I can't believe garlic soup. Mm. (laughs) Try it out. (laughs) You'll you'll order an encore right away. Uh, And he, he now has this little restaurant and it's been rated by one of the, you know, culture magazines as the, the best uh, Arabic restaurant in Connecticut. Wow. Um, is it, and, in, Win- is it now, in Winstead? Is it in Winstead? Yeah, it's in Winstead. And during the COVID, uh, when he closed, had to close the restaurant, he, he spent day after day taking food that he would cook in the kitchen to food pantries oh. and hungry people all, all, in Torrington and, uh, and Winstead and other places, all on his own, on his own nickel. Um, so... You know the the. I mean, we we are a country that is uh, blessed by having immigrants, uh, and uh, um, and he really demonstrated it. And he's one of the most popular people in the area now. That's wonderful. It's like it's like the work of Jose Andreas, right? Who's out there doing all that he can do for 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 people. Uh, there's also a, you know I know that he he mentioned you have a, a quote by him but the founder of busboys and poets uh, andy shalal 
uh, is a big fan of this book as well. I'm a big fan of Busboys and Poets. I think they oh, do a yeah. marvelous, marvelous job. So, so Ralph. Yeah, Busboys and Poets. You know, for, for listeners, uh, Busboys and Poets, he has five of them now in Washington, uh, D.C., and he has a bookstore in every one of them. So you walk in, you see the bookstore, you, then you go to the area where you have dinner or lunch, and then he has a room for events, author events, poetry, uh, music events. Um, it's just a spectacular blend, uh, and people just love it. And it's completely diverse uh, patrons, and uh, um, I can't say enough about Andy Shalal. He, I call him democracy's restaurateur. <laughs> That's and, um, that is you great. know I have to do I have to give a nod to Acastic Books as you noted uh, uh, Mitch it's a beautifully done book and all their books are done it's a small publisher in Brooklyn for those of you who uh, want to look at their catalog it's not just cookbooks all kinds of other beautiful books well the fact is uh, you know Johnny Temple is a friend of all booksellers everywhere and particularly us here in Miami and we you we carry all of his books and he's just a marvelous guy who's been doing some really groundbreaking work on bringing you know voices that you wouldn't normally hear he brings them to the forefront and then he has these very cool series like um you know the noir fiction series from different cities all over the world yes and yes. and it I'm so glad the two of you came together with this book right now. Uh, we need we need to get, I think, you know, one of the things that I heard that resonated with me so deeply is that what the pandemic has made so many of us realize is that time is precious. And what you do with that time in order to be around those you care about, your family, your friends, what better way to do it than around a meal, right? And I think, say, that, I think that's what is infused all throughout the Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook. Also, Ralph, there's no way that I could possibly have you on, a, uh, on, on any kind of a discussion without trying to take the temperature of where you think we are right now as a country, as a world. What are some of the things that you fear? What are some of the things that you're hopeful about right now? Well, the most frightening uh, domestically is uh, the, the voter suppression efforts in 25 states, some of them already law. And when you suppress the vote, you're defrauding the voter. So it's very ironic that these Republican hardline legislatures are saying they're doing this because of voter fraud. It's their fraud. on the, They're defrauding the voter. And in the, mean, in the meanwhile, they're making it harder for third-party and independent candidates to get uh, on, on the ballot. And then they are entrenching gerrymandering, and they're benefiting from the Electoral College. So uh, this is like uh, hoisting minority votes into majority domination, which, of course, is what their intent is. And I don't think court challenges are enough, especially with the Supreme Court up there six to three. Uh, I think there's got, there's got to be a, a, a movement to criminalize this. There is, a lot of these vote, voter suppression uh, statutes and other shenanigans that precede Trump at the state level have no criminal penalty. 
it's really quite astonishing. You, you know, you forge a $50 check and it's a crime and you can go to jail, uh, but you forge a de- a, an election and it's just business as usual. Republicans do it. The Democrats do it. Well, that's only partially true, but the Republicans now are way, way ahead of the Democrats in suppressing our democratic society. The other thing that bothers me is that Biden is just like Obama. They're extending their Republican predecessors with empire all over the world. I mean, we're spending trillions of dollars making wars illegally, unconstitutionally. A hundred and four countries we have bases in, uh, and we're devouring ourselves at home. Where's the money to rebuild and restore and upgrade our public works and public services that we call infrastructure? So we're, we haven't learned from historical empires who always end up devouring their own country, whether it's Rome or the British Empire or the Soviet Empire or whatever. And uh, I don't see Biden uh, pulling back the way he should. Um, He's actually using one of the few good phrases of Trump. He's saying we've got to get rid of these endless wars. Yeah, but we've got to get rid of these endless expenditures all over the world as if we're the dominant policemen of the world, and we spend trillions of dollars uh, with weapon systems that pile up uh, so redundant that one professor uh, at Columbia University, an industrial engineering professor years ago, he said, we have enough in equivalent TNT to blow up the world 300 times. Hmm. Like one nuclear trident sub, Mitch, can destroy 200 cities in an hour. So, and um, and we've got to stop supporting autocrats and um, all the rest of the heritage of this Cold War, and make our country a humanitarian superpower. What do you What do you think of this infrastructure plan that's out there now, which is broader than I, just infrastructure? No, I think it's good. Uh, human infrastructure. Uh, Biden made that phrase. That's good. You know, uh, daycare, $300 monthly checks like Canadian children have been getting for decades, uh, uh, cutting poverty in half, plus everything from uh, public transit, roads, bridges, Amtrak, uh, you know, uh, dams, ports, uh, all these things that have been in uh, disrepair. Uh, not to mention bridges and roads. Um, That's all there. But you know what most people are not being informed, Mitch, is if you take all of Trump's uh, bills, you know, that he passed in the COVID uh, for relief and stimulus, and all the ones Biden has already passed, and all the ones he wants to pass, he has about a $4 trillion figure for all the ones he has passed and wants to pass. And they just about are equivalent to what U.S. corporations wasted uh, spending $8 trillion in the last 10 years on buy, stock buybacks, yeah, which, are, which are a total right. waste, doesn't create any jobs, just increases the metrics for their compensation. And it's like they don't have anything better, Apple and other corporations, to do with all that money. Well, why don't they cut the prices for computers and uh, 
and iPhones. If they're making so much money, they don't know how to reinvest it productively or shore up their worker pension plans or put it in research and development or recycling uh, used uh, computers and iPhones. Um, then they're basically mismanagers. So what they do is they buy back their stock. So which is what, anybody which is who thinks that's... Yeah, it's it's what these tax cuts did. It allowed you know the, they just used it to buy back their stocks, really more than yeah, exactly. And, and lying all the way because they told the Congress they needed tax cuts to get capital for productive investment and jobs. Well, they already had trillions of dollars in capital, and they blew it, including the airlines. I might I guess it over thirty five billion dollars in stock buybacks before COVID, a few years before COVID. And then they went to Washington for a multi-billion-dollar uh, bailout after COVID started. So uh, there's no substitute for civic engagement. It all comes down to us. We're the uh, taproot of what kind of political economy we're going to have uh, if we sit it out and and don't pick up our responsibilities a few hours a month, um, locally and nationally. And we're, we're going to get what we're getting, a, a deteriorating democracy, a huge poverty, uh, and deteriorating public services. You know, Ralph, having your voice out there and reading this book in conjunction with talking to you makes me realize, thank God for your mom and your dad who fed you such great food so early on. So that, I say that every day, man. So that you, I don't, so that, I don't, so totally that, lucky choice of parents. So that we could hear your voice for as many years as we have, and you know, I just want to end by, by one, you know, at the, the end of the book, there's this lovely picture of your mom, uh, with her great grandson, and that smile, uh, you know, that smile is amazing, and Marlo Thomas, um. Uh, who I know is a fan, says, Rose Nader not only prepared the cuisine of my family's homeland to perfection, she infused it with heritage. Whenever she brought me a magical plate of Lebanese goodies, she was sure to remind me in Arabic of that old motto of the Lebanese kitchen, an empty hand is a dirty hand. I love that. An empty hand is a dirty hand. Yep. Yeah, we heard that many a time. Whenever a neighbor would come, a new neighbor would come into the community, she would bake two loaves of bread and go over there, introduce herself, and give them the bread. Well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure I go find some of my favorite, you know, labna and pita and um, hummus and Baba Ganoush, and I'm going to think of you, and I can't thank you enough for being my guest on The Literary Life, Ralph Nader. Well, thank you, Mitch, and I can't thank you enough for what you've done for independent bookstores and your marvelous bookstores in the Miami area, which I hope are fully open. They are, and we hope to see you down here one day soon. <laughs>